just one topic today, Putinism, Patrushevism. So, what's that? I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. So, I'm recording this on the morning of Sunday the 31st of July. You may well pick up some rather different acoustics. I hope they work out okay, because I'm recording this not from my usual kitchen in London, but from the flat in Washington, D.C. that will be my intermittent on-and-off base for the next few months. And what I want to do is actually look at something that I floated in a piece of mine that appeared in today's Sunday Times, the the proper Sunday Times, the London Sunday Times, that is, of course, which is the concept of Putinism, Patrushevism. And in many ways, this comes from, I mean, apart from my own unhealthy obsession with Nikolai Patrushev, the Secretary of the Security Council and the sort of de facto national security advisor in the, the modern Putinist state. But beyond that, really, it comes from this conundrum. On the one hand, Putin actually has been pretty consistent in what he wants. Really, when, well, frankly, not just from the start of his presidential career in the end of 1999, but even before then. You know, it is clear this is a man who wants Russia to be a great power. He wants, obviously, his own and his regime's survival. But the point is that in this respect, the relative consistency of his wants does mean that a lot of the more, let's say, Russia-negative types of analysts and commentators have been able to suggest that there are these long-term plans of war and annexation, of you know, grand ambitions to rebuild the Soviet Union, more on that in a moment, or re- basically reconstruct the Tsarist Empire, and all these kinds of things. And they use this as the basis to suggest not just that there is this uh, evil machination coming from the Kremlin, but also by implication that the West has been foolish, naive, purblind, whatever, not to address it from the very beginning. And there's a lot of, particularly one can imagine at the moment, a lot of, shall we say, an, an intellectual market for these kind of takes. And as a sidebar on that, I was, for example, really quite shocked, well actually probably more depressed than shocked, how quickly some disinformation, and that's all I can call it, disinformation spread about apparently Sergei Shoigu, defence minister, letting the cat out of the bag and making it clear what was intended. The claim is, after all, that he gave this speech in which he said, soon there will be a Soviet Union again, that no one would leave and we would all live in peace. And exactly, this got propagated at the speed of Twitter. And let's be perfectly honest, on the one hand, Twitter is a most extraordinary research source. 
It is also the most horrific blight upon the information sphere, because exactly what happens is people for whom this just seems to fit what they expect instantly retweet and comment without actually digging into the reality behind it, because the reality behind it is rather different. In fact, this came from a speech that Shoigu was giving at an event commemorating the anniversary, the 30th anniversary of the Russian peacekeeping operation that was part of the 1991 to 1992 Ossetian, South Ossetian Georgian War. And in that context, what he actually said was, at the time, in other words, he's talking about 1991-2, just after the collapse of the Soviet Union, at the time, I am certain, especially amongst my generation, we were absolutely certain that all of this was temporary, that our nation would once again be great and powerful, that soon there would be a Soviet Union again, that no one would leave, and we would all live in peace. In other words, he was simply stating a view that was held in the immediate aftermath of the Soviet collapse. And he then goes on to say, all these events truly remained history and were never to be repeated. This was a deliberately truncated extract used to create the sense that Shoigu was admitting that today's Kremlin had the ambition to rebuild the Soviet Union and that no one will be allowed to leave it. That's nonsense. And look, and in not in this respect, I'm not in any way trying to defend Russian policy. I'm just saying that this is the problem. There's a problem that, and we see this not just in terms of the, the Kremlin's geopolitics. People want to assume, or just automatically assume, that there has to be a long-range plan. That they look at all the dots and the events, and they put them together, and they construct that narrative. Because that's what human beings do. We are pattern recognition beasts. We seek to find some kind of order, structure, and an overall pattern. And if there isn't one there, by giddy, we will create it. So this is what happens. And I think, I mean, this is something that I've, I've encountered in many other sort of areas. I mean, like the, the story, after all, of the enrichment of Putin and his cronies, I see that essentially as a bunch of opportunists grabbing opportunities when they occurred, rather than that they sat down in the 1990s and sort of sketched out a plan for their mass, obscene, embezzled enrichment, that kind of thing. But, so, but nonetheless, you know, th there is this sense that obviously there has to be this long-term plan precisely because he has always, well, I say always, but Putin has, since before he was president, been seeking the same objectives. But of course, if that's the case, why was he so inconsistent? Why does he not take opportunities when they actually arise, rather than moving in later, perhaps less propitious moments? And the classic example is precisely what we've seen with Ukraine. If his plan had always been to close Moscow's grip directly on the throat of the Ukrainians, why didn't he move in 2014? rather than 2022. 2014 was the, the ideal moment. You just had the Yeromaidan. And although you know, this was obviously a broadly popular movement, there were enough people who were disconcerted by what could equally be described as an illegal coup from the streets. More to the point, the Ukrainian military was in disarray, its security forces were thoroughly penetrated, there were many who were willing to defect. You know, 2014 would have been that moment. So, okay, this we have this conundrum. 
And my answer to it is essentially that, yes, Putin does have consistent, broad ambitions. These ambitions exactly about great power status, personal and regime prosperity and security. However, they have been modulated, not just by the circumstances of the day, you know, the military balance, relations with neighbours, just events that happen and so forth, but also based on who is actually influencing Putin at the time. There is, I think, a sort of constant way in which this, you know, rather grey man does look to others to provide some kind of intellectual, theoretical uh, underpinnings to his thinking. And that, that very much shapes the, the, the kind of trajectory. And particularly Putin's notions of what great power status and indeed personal regime security looks like and means. In the very early years, after all, we had relatively westernizing, relatively liberal figures like Alexei Kudrin, the finance minister, who were able to convince him that great power status, political autonomy for Russia on the world stage, and indeed, yes, personal and regime security and prosperity, were best ensured by economic reform and economic development and seeking some kind of a relatively positive relationship with the West. Remember, these are not people who immediately said, oh, we have to embrace all the West's views, but more or less they said, look, the West is where power is to be found, the West is where money is to be found. We want to make these people, I suppose, up to a point, our friends, but more to the point, allies. So this is a time when we had overtures about counterterrorism cooperation following 9-11. We even saw Putin making kind of first moves towards suggesting that, well, perhaps Russia could join NATO. Now, admittedly, this was never going to be a runner, not least because Putin himself seemed to believe that Russia ought to be given some kind of special access. You know, it shouldn't have to go through the same process as all these other ordinary countries. But anyway, I think that wasn't just simply a, a sort of disingenuous bit of, um, you know, maskirovka and deception or anything like that. I think it genuinely reflected that notion that Russia's strength was to be found in some kind of a positive relationship with the West. Now, this wouldn't last very long, not least because of the huge gaps between, shall we say, what Putin felt that cooperation with the West meant and what the West felt. And things like you know, the West's outrage at the abuses that were being carried out during the Second Chechen War, things like that all helped to, to exacerbate the situation culminating in the now infamous Munich speech, where he more or less laid out this point that essentially said, and I'm just about caricaturing and paraphrasing here, that you know, he'd had enough and he was peed off with what the West was doing. And in some ways what we now got after that was the, the era of, of Surkov, the political technologist, who I, I basically advocated this notion that a manipulated sovereign democracy, as it was called at home, and, shall I say, cosplaying great power status abroad, very much on the cheap. It's kind of fake-it-till-you-make-it school of geopolitics. You know, that if Russia acted and talked like a great power, it would be deemed to be and treated like a great power. And this was, therefore, an era of wary coexistence with the West. There was a certain amount of uh, you know, rhetorical back and forth thing, but essentially the idea was that Russia would throw its weight around at home and in its immediate strategic neighbourhood. But so long as it talked the talk of some kind of pragmatic relationship with the West, 
there was a belief that it would be able to get away with that. And you know, when one looked at, for example, the 2008 Georgian War, which was almost immediately followed by the American offer of, of a reset in relations, well, actually, the sort of Sorkovian approach seemed to be working. It seemed to have this sense that, you know, actually Russia could have considerable freedom of manoeuvre to break the rules within its own neighbourhood, and that the West would be willing to allow that to happen precisely because Russia would look strong and confident. However, then we had the 2011-2012 Balotnaya protests against the return of Putin to the presidency and against the manipulation of the political process, which is, after all, at the heart of the Surkovian approach. And obviously these protests were, were viewed by Putin and many others around him as being either instigated by or at the very least encouraged and facilitated by the West. And already we're, we're beginning to see a, a different tack being taken. A much more hostile, conspiratorial sense of what the West was. A sense that actually Although Russia may have been willing to have a certain kind of guarded coexistence, the West isn't willing to play ball. The West actually is the one that is aggressive. The West is encroaching. And it needed, in order to be deterred, to be responded to with very tough rhetoric and also a tough stance. And then, of course, 2014 seems to, to vindicate all of this. 2014, the Maidan, which again is perceived as a, a Western-inspired or run rising against a legitimate regime, and a regime in a country that matters to Russia, toppling a ruler with whom the Russians felt they could work. You know, obviously, brackets, felt that they could work equals could dictate terms to. So at this point, you actually already have the sense that, no, Russia has to move forward. If it is going to deter this hostile West, it has to show its teeth. So, you know, this is part of, and only part of, the reason for the annexation of Crimea, the willingness to get embroiled in the Donbass, and in due course, more or less, sort of take over what originally had been this kind of incohate rising. And indeed, one could also look at Syria as a, another example of this, of the bear having to show its teeth as the only way of getting this hostile West to back off. And I would suggest that the, in this point, I mean, the key figures were people like Shoigu, uh, Valodin, who at the time was the deputy head of the presidential administration and thus its sort of chief political technologist, and indeed the head of the, political administration, uh, the presidential administration, Sergei Ivanov who was you know, definitely a, a hawkish figure. And this is the interesting thing. So there was a certain degree of balance. Shoigu, I think, was at the most uh, sort of pragmatic end. I mean, absolutely a Russian patriot nationalist regards the West as hostile. But nonetheless, you know, rather more, more shall we say, level-headed in his assessments. Ivanov probably on the, the more hawkish level. Volodin being primarily interested in, in the domestic, domestic political side. So no one figure was dominant. And the view was, I think, very much that there was a conflict with the West, but essentially it was not, shall I say, ideological. It was not based on Russophobia or whatever, but it was based on, on geopolitics. And, and again, let me quote, quote Shoigu here, and I promise I'm not taking him out of context when I do so. What he said was, this is in 2019, our Western colleagues cannot come to terms with the fact that the era of unipolarity is irrevocably ending 
and they're trying to restrain this natural process. In other words, you know, the basic point was, look, the Americans are arrogant would-be hegemons who had their moment in which they absolutely could shape the world, but that moment is ending and they're not really will be willing, willing to come to terms with that and they're trying to force other countries to, to bend the knee. I mean, there is an interesting, if entirely unintentional irony, that one could argue this is precisely what Russia is doing within its own uh, strategic neighbourhood, but never mind that. But the point is exactly, it's, it's basically almost a sense of, well, of course, this is what happens. This is what happens with, with great powers and declining empires, that they seek to hold on to their glory days, just we're not willing to cooperate with that. So that was, a, a, shall we say, a fairly, for want of a better word, rational understanding of this process, even if rooted in deeply irrational misunderstandings of the processes at work. But then things began to change, and perhaps it's the COVID-era period of Putin being closeted with his friend Yuri Kovalchuk, the two of them fulminating together about Ukraine's ingratitude and, and the West's perfidy, um, Ivanov himself, who really had never been the same since the, the death of his son, who drowned in the United Arab Emirates in 2014. Um, you know, his star had waned as well. And, and generally speaking, this is the time when clearly we see the rise to preeminence of someone who admittedly was already significantly powerful before. But yes, we, this, is, this is my particular obsession Nikolai Platonovich Patrushev. And Patrushev has a very different kind of influence, a very different notion. His is an essentially ideological view of the world without an ideology. What do I mean by that? It's driven not by an understanding of the practical politics of the day-to-day, but instead some sense that there is a kind of you know, overarching grand civilizational struggles. His view is that, after all, it is the Anglo-Saxons, those, I mean, I'm assuming he's not thinking of people who then would go on to invade the, the British Isles. But anyway, it is the Anglo-Saxons who represent this kind of malign force in global politics against whom the Russians are, are locked. It's a very Manichaean sense of the world in, in which basically it's, it's all black or white. There is no space for neutrality, and thus it's deeply uncompromising. I mean, for, for old school Soviet historians, for me, he is the Suslov of the modern world. After Mikhail Suslov, Brezhnev's second secretary, de facto ideological chief, the former editor of Pravda, head of the Central Committee's international department, and all-round poster child for what I would suggest is the very, very worst of late imperialist Marxism-Leninism. So yes, that, that's the kind of person I, th I think that the Patrushev represents. Because after all, this is not just about him. I think that his rise has also coincided with, and in some ways been part of, a general change in the, the structure of, of power around Putin, which is also reflected by the changes in people. Uh, I mean, in 2016, for example, we have you know, all change in the presidential administration. Sergei Ivanov goes, uh, in comes Anton Vino as head of the political administration. Uh, I keep calling it political administration, sorry, presidential administration. And why that is significant is, look, Vino is in no way a kind of strong ideological figure. 
But that's the whole point. He is not actually, I would suggest, a really strong figure. Ivanov absolutely was. So in some ways what happened is the presidential administration became that much less powerful, and therefore its capacity to rein in Nikolai Patrushev and the Security Council Secretariat, that is technically part of, even if an autonomous part of the presidential administration, declined quite strikingly. At the same time, Volodin went to become the Speaker of the State Duma, and in came Sergei Kirienko in that role as deputy head and, and political technologist in chief. Kirienko being, again, I think a figure, you know, he's, he's younger, he's clearly got ambitions. This is not a man who will lie down in front of to try and stop any careering bandwagons. No, he was exactly the kind of person to jump onto them, as we have seen, and I've mentioned in previous podcasts, um, with him sort of presenting himself, trying to almost sell himself as the potential curator of the conquered parts of Ukraine. And then in 2020, we have Mikhail Mishustin replacing Medvedev as prime minister. Now, again, is Mishustin some kind of rabid ideologist? No, absolutely not. Quite the opposite. But on the other hand, again, what this represents is this widening gulf, I would say, between the true nodes where policy is made in the grand terms and then where policy is executed. So what we have is Vino and Mishustin as people who are there not to shape policy but to execute it in different ways. And instead we have Kirienka and Patrushev, above all Patrushev, emerging as policy makers. And it's worth noting, I mean, when when Vino and Kirienka stepped in, uh, the people they replaced had both been in office for five years. When Mishustin stepped in, Medvedev had been prime minister for eight years. Um, this is actually you know, clearly a, a distinct strategic shift in the government. Now, look, Putinism, in my opinion, doesn't really exist as a proper ism. It's not an ideology with a clear platform, a clear sense. I mean, you know, an ideology has to have a sense that is, A, I think, sort of broader than just one country, but B, also has a true vision of the future. And, and Putinism doesn't really have, doesn't have that. It has essentially, it is rather a sense of a broad collection of aspirations, as I've mentioned. And this is why I'm talking about Putinism, Patrushevism in this case. Look, think of the parallel of Marxism. Now, Karl Marx did not see himself as someone who was setting out to create a blueprint for how future societies would be run. He saw himself, rather, as someone who was describing how the objective and impersonal forces of economic and social development would reshape human society. You know, his view was just simply that the, the shift from you know, bourgeois democracy to socialism and eventually to communism... That was an objective truth, and he was just simply explaining it, and clearly also encouraging a process that he thought was, was a positive one. But Marx doesn't tell you how, under socialism, municipal sanitation is going to be run. Marx doesn't tell you what the structure of a socialist army ought to be in detail. Frankly, if nothing else, that, that would have been more Engels's thing. It's, it is this very, very broad notion of human evolution that is really at the heart of it. And when one looks at Marxism-Leninism, the ideology of the Soviet Union, and then, indeed, in due course, Marxism-Leninism-Stalinism for a while, we see the broad concept 
made into a, say, say a form of practical politics, even if often it was actually very, very impractical practical politics, by the executor, by the person who actually takes the ideology and applies it in country. And this is why I think that one can talk about Putinism, Patrushevism, however much of a mouthful that is, in a way that perhaps once upon a time, had we but known it, we were witnessing Putinism Kudrinism or Putinism Surkovism or whatever. So it's essentially the broad sense of what Putin wants, which is the consistent thing, but at different times it's been modulated by different people and in the current phase it is modulated through probably mixing my metaphors here, shall I say, the, the deeply distorting and frankly rather unpleasant prism of Patrushev's own notions as to exactly how those objectives can be defined and what is the best way of reaching them. And this is, I would suggest, and this is what I say in, in that Sunday Times piece, what I would consider to be, shall I say, final stage Putinism because I really can't see any further evolution to be found in, in Putin's behaviour, both because of the nature of the times, his own age, and the sort of, frankly, the way in which his actions, above all in Ukraine, have, I think, defined his future. There's no way he can ever get out under that shadow. So let's take a deep breath and a short break, and then I'll come back and talk about what I actually think Putinism, Patrushevism is, and what it means for policy and for the rest of us. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. So to return to my basic thesis, it is that whereas Putin has been pretty consistent throughout his reign as to what he wants, it is who influences him, who very much sort of gets to shape what that actually means. You know, what is the reality of a strong Russia? How is his personal regime best secured? Well, that very much depends on who gets to whisper in his ear. Who gets to paint the picture of the outside world? Who gets to sell their own notion of the future of Russia to him? And that explains why we also actually have you know, such a trajectory, but a very definite sense that there are different periods of Putinism, that there's different actual angles to it. So at present, it's basically shaped by Patrushev. And what really does this mean? How has this actually manifested itself? Well, first of all, to go back to that point I made about the, the essentially Manichaean nature of Putin's sort of ideology, shall we say, now under Patrushev's influence. Because the interesting thing is this. I mean, look, you know, Putin clearly has never had much time for people who actually challenge him. But this is a man who, for a long period, actually was also willing to allow a certain degree of pluralism whether it's in terms of people in his own circle who had different uh, perspectives and would wish to try and sell those to him, or more broadly in society, the sense that there was room for civil society and the grassroots, and even some limited forms of opposition. Again, look, I'm really not saying that this was a, a truly democratic system by any means, but it was a hybrid regime. 
it was one that did allow a certain amount of, of, of flexibility and freedom of, of opinion, precisely because A, it was useful as a safety valve, B, it provided alternative perspectives that could then be mined, and C, why bother picking a fight with your own society? Well, this has very much changed, and I think, although in part it's precisely because of the pressures of war, one could just as easily say the war is simply a, I don't know, an expression of this sense that there is no more room for the middle ground. And the Ukrainians, by their determination to remain independent, were in effect betraying Mother Russia. And if we go back to, I think it was really striking in March, when, when Putin spoke, then it was a sort of speech to his ministers, which was then publicised and televised and so forth. And I mean, he made that it very absolutely clear at that point the degree to which the world had changed as far as Russia is concerned. And he was talking about the West. The West was trying to bet on a so-called fifth column, on traitors to the nation. And more to the point, he felt that those people who were still willing to side with the West, shall we say, were necessarily, therefore, anti-Russia. And what he said was the Russian people will always be able to distinguish the true patriots from the scum and the traitors and just spit them out like a fly that accidentally flew into their mouths. Well, okay, Uh, slightly strange and slightly disturbing and certainly distasteful uh, little metaphor there. Um, But this idea that there are patriots, there are true patriots, sorry, and then there are scum and traitors. And at another point, you know, he talked about the fact that there is going to be a natural and necessary self-cleansing of society. That, in his view, will only strengthen our country, our solidarity, our cohesion and our readiness to meet any challenge. Well, of course, uh, a self-cleansing, cleansing, chistka, I mean, that word also means purge. And look, one can go way too far in drawing Stalinist analogies. But nonetheless, this idea, this sense that the middle ground is no longer an acceptable place, the middle ground has become a no-man's land where you actually get shot from both sides, is a very strikingly Patrushevian way of looking at the world. And that, I think, has now become pretty central, I think, to how the regime structures its relationships with the outside world, but above all with its own people. Are you a patriot? Or are you a traitor? There are no third options. And that links to the sort of second point I'd make, which is, as I say, a kind of, for want of a better word, ideological, even if there's no real ideology within it, but sort of civilizational sense of what is going on, that the, the struggles are essentially ones in which it is not about what Russia does that the West is responding to, it's what Russia is. And in this respect, it also therefore lends itself to a phenomenally paranoid view in which the world is constantly a dangerous and threatening place. I mean, here's an interesting, if if disturbing, take from an ex-presidential administration insider on Patrushev's notion of threats and plots. And he said, Nikolai Platonovich assumes they are everywhere. And where he doesn't see any, he assumes they are all the more dangerous because they're so well hidden. I mean, how ultimately can you reply to and engage with that kind of logic? That either you see a plot 
or else it's a plot that is so well hidden that you can't see it. You know, the, the, this, this kind of logic, and I use the word in its loosest sense of the word, is, is actually a, a, a very, very sort of difficult one with which to engage. And it comes from this notion, as I said before, of, of a civilizational struggle in which Russia, somehow because it is Russia, because of, of its history, its place in the world, is necessarily an existential threat, and I'll come back to that word existential later, an existential threat to the Anglo-Saxons and their determination to impose their hegemonic rule over the whole of the globe. And it's one also in which, of course then, the, the natural elite, the people on whom you rely, are going to be the spooks, the intelligence officers, the Czechists, to use the, the Russian term, you know, going back to the very first Bolshevik secret police, the Cheka. And again, this also helps explain, I think, some of the relatively poor relationship that, that uh, Patrushev seems to have with Shoigu. And it's really quite striking for the two key figures in terms of Russian security policy. They have, I think it's fair to say, at best, no relationship whatsoever. It is perfectly cordial. But if nothing else, I mean, try and find photos of the two of them together. Not two of them sit, sitting around a table at a Security Council meeting with Putin or whatever, but the two of them together. Bloody difficult. And okay, that is a trivial particular sort of data point, but nonetheless, I think a telling one. Anyway, this is from uh, sort of a former uh, SVR, Russian Foreign Intelligence Service officer in, in 2017, who said that the, the two men have nothing to do with each other. One is a Czechist, through and through and the other is not. And that kind of Czechist doesn't respect anyone who isn't. And it's worth noting, after all, that this was coming from a former Czechist. And it's, it's not so much about Patrushev and Shoigu specifically, but about Patrushev's own worldview. One in which it is not only that Russia is fighting this constant civilizational threat, but that precisely because these threats, although they can be overt, such as, as he would see in Ukraine, but you know, they can, they're mainly covert, and that therefore those people who are not in the covert world of the intelligence services, and remember, Patrushev is, after all, a career intelligence officer from the KGB onwards, but you know, those people who are not in that world, really they don't know what they're talking about, and that therefore they should basically shut the hell up and do what they're told. They should listen to the people who do know and understand that, their role is just simply, once again, to be the executors, not the makers of policy. And this naturally leads to, I think, the sort of third broad point I'd make, which is exactly that this is a very, very absolutist sense. You know, as far as, as Patrushev is concerned, um, you know, and uh, if I say absolutist, I mean in the sense of that there, there are no alternatives. You know, Russia is in this existential struggle. I mean, at the notorious Security Council meeting of the 21st of February, for example, I mean, he said, the United States has designated Russia in its doctrinal documents. And we should note that, again, in the Russian system, doctrine matters, perhaps rather more so than in the West. So, you know, when he says doctrinal documents, that's, that means something to him and to his audience. But anyway, has designated Russia in its doctrinal documents as an enemy. And practically everywhere, this is reflected in their actions which are conducted from the point of view that we are their enemy. So, you know, there is this struggle, and what can you do with that struggle, this, you know, massive global struggle against you, 
The only way you can respond is absolutely wholeheartedly with total commitment and zero mercy. There is, you know, this is something that in which the future of Russia and indeed the future of the world is at stake. And I thought it was quite striking that quite recently Patrushev uh, positively name-checked General Mikhail Skobelev, who was a Tsarist officer who in 1881 oversaw the massacre of Turkmen defenders at a place called Georg Tepe. And Skobelev, and in some ways this was, for want of a better word, the Skobelev doctrine, said, the duration of the peace is in direct proportion to the slaughter you inflict on the enemy. The harder you hit them, the longer they remain quiet. I mean, again, one, one could argue the, the, the uh, validity of that particular perspective, but the very fact that this is the person whom Patrushev brings as a sort of almost as someone to be emulated is, I think, significant. Oh, and by the way, while I think of it, when I mentioned a Skobolev doctrine, I was joking. Please, please, please do not assume that I'm actually launching another beast like the, the damn Gerasimov doctrine onto the world. So put these things together. We have a man who essentially thinks that, that Russia is in a struggle for its life in which there is no middle ground, in which it is driven by an essentially civilizational, which is after all unbridgeable, um, distinction, and that the only way Russia can resist is precisely by pushing all of its natural efforts into this struggle. Well, the policy implications are therefore really quite striking. I mean, the first key thing is it absolutely demands, from his point of view, the mobilization of all elements of society into this struggle. Now, first of all, I mean, clearly we've, we've seen this within the economy, um, with the recent, I mean, although, you know, at first Putin was willing to listen to the technocrats who were hoping to basically maintain the status quo and essentially market-driven economy, despite the fact that, that Patrushev and certain other statists right from the beginning were saying, no, basically we need to move to a full war-fighting economy. Well, at the time, back in February, the technocrats won. However, we've seen this month, uh, I would say, quite a pivotal shift with the passing of a law that essentially means that even within a, quote, special military operation context, one can actually invoke all the military economic mobilization means that one would be able to in a time of war, which means things like you know, requiring people within defence-relevant sectors to do compulsory overtime, uh, forcing companies to accept government contracts even if they would rather not try and meet them, unlocking of strategic stockpiles of certain um, resources, that, all, that, all that kind of thing. So you know, we've already seen quite a striking step forward into the, the militarization of the Russian economy this, this, well, this, this in, in the past month and a half, really, um, you know, to ensure that basically everything is, is ready for the military needs. And it's you know, one that is moving away from the market economics, which, after all, have been central to Russia um, for the last 30 years. And he himself has, has gone on record saying that he's uh, sort of hostile to this sort of um, excessive focus on the market mechanism. Beyond that, in terms of politics, um, you know, what we're seeing again, I think, is the, the, the de-hybridization, that's an ugly neologism for you, of the, the, the Putinist regime. 
the days when it would tr put a considerable amount of effort into trying to look democratic and indeed did allow for some genuine sort of low-level democracy or at least pluralism um, to be present, I think you know, we, we see them clearly being, being squeezed out. And it's, it's going to be quite interesting um, in this autumn's elections how much effort they really put into actually sort of stage managing it and how much they just simply sort of treat it as a completely empty farce. Beyond that, we actually have the, the mobilisation of regional power structures in every respect. We, you know, we've already seen main cities and regions being sort of essentially forced into taking on parts of the conquered territories and devoting their own efforts and resources into trying to rebuild them. So St. Petersburg has taken over Mariupol in that respect. Moscow has been forced to, to take on um, Donetsk. Beyond that, we now have military units being raised. I mean, you know, if you think of someone like uh, Sabyanin, the mayor of Moscow, who clearly is trying to distinct, distinguish himself from the Z-heads, the people who are so supportive of the war, but nonetheless, he is now being forced, with his own budget, to raise the so-called Sabyanin regiment to go and fight there. So essentially a mercenary force being raised in Moscow, at Moscow's expense, because Putin tells him to. And again, I think this is the point. It's not just simply about how else can we get some extra troops. It's also about how can we bring all aspects of the political structure into appreciating that it is now, whether it likes it or not, part of a war-fighting machine. And every single other element of policy is now increasingly under pressure to realise this, this new role I mean, even if one looks at, at education, for example, again, it was an interesting line. I mean, Patrushev, once again, speaking to uh, a conference of teachers, said, in the conditions of hybrid war, which is you know, it's quite interesting how the Russians have adopted this term, anyway, as, as a Western thing, in the conditions of hybrid war, which is now being deployed against Russia, teachers are at the front lines. And this is by no means unique to teachers. One can look at it in so many different areas, from, from regional development to, indeed, agricultural uh, policy, where, after all, there's a key incentive to make sure that Russia grows all its own food so they can't be strangled by those, those evil Anglo-Saxons. Um, you know, in all of these areas, Patrushev keeps cropping up and essentially delivering a keynote speech, which makes it clear that, no, it's now time for mobilisation. And then, lo and behold, we start then seeing that actually being applied, whether it's in terms of laws being passed through the Duma, whether it's in terms of ordinances being passed by governors and mayors, or whether it's in terms of the, the Council of Ministers and, and, and different, actually, ministries applying new rules onto, you know, whether it's teachers or medics or, or whatever else. Um, speaking of medics, there's some suggestion that now, as part of qualifying, in the future, uh, trainee doctors and nurses will have to do a, a short stint in the military as uh, you know, a, a necessary element of, of their qualification process. Well, that's one way of essentially creating a, a route for conscripting military medics. So you know, all of these areas are now being subsumed within the, the, the military process. And the good thing about a military process from the point of view of someone like, like Patrushev is precisely it is a disciplined and hierarchical one. There's much less room for all this irritating local democracy, all this irritating pluralism, all this irritating assumption that other people might have opinions and that those opinions might have some kind of validity. 
And look, if this sounds a little bit fascistic, well, this is the irony. I mean, the, this very time in which Moscow claims, continues to claim, in fact, arguably, thanks to Patrushev, it's now once again claiming that it is fighting a war against a fascist Ukraine in order to denazify it. Well, at that very time, Russia is in itself beginning to sort of shift closer to what we might think of as a fascistic mode of organisation. And when I say fascism, let's make one thing absolutely clear. I am not talking about Nazi Germany. We really need to distinguish between the two. Instead, I'm actually talking about the rather more sort of populist, but also quite imperialist, fascist Italy. And if one thinks of one of the sort of the key slogans that, that Mussolini propagated, tutto nello Stato, niente al di fuori dello Stato, nulla contro lo Stato. In other words, everything in the state, nothing outside the state, and nothing against the state. Well, quite frankly, this could just as easily be Patrushev's motto. Now, look, this does not mean that Russia is now firmly and totally in the grip of some kind of sort of slavering xenophobes or whatever. Patrushev and Putin and all the rest, they are not insane. And they will continue to act pragmatically within the constraints of their understanding of the world. And I think that is the crucial thing. It's their understanding of the world. And the more that they believe that they are in this existential political struggle with the West the more that, that will begin to be manifest in the kind of decisions that they will make in Ukraine. Think about it, after all. The initial drive on Kyiv, once it was painfully clear that it was not going to succeed, well, at that point, what did Putin do? He pulled back and he c consolidated his campaign in the southeast, on the Donbass and on the Crimean Corridor. You know, that was, in its own brutal and bloody way, a rational decision. However, now we may well see a, a, a belief that, in fact, to change policy and to be seen as withdrawing from any sort of particular effort might well be seen as not just weakness, but, but a real danger. And particularly at a time when it is not impossible that the Ukrainians are going to make some, not just taking Kherson, but some serious further gains in the south, they may even come to a position in which they are threatening Crimea. And I think this new form of Putin is actually much more likely to operate in an escalatory way. Whether that means sort of expanding the, the scope of the war, perhaps putting more pressure on Lukashenko to at least threaten the north of Ukraine to force the Ukrainians to, to, to redeploy forces, whether it's perhaps covert attacks on supply routes bringing Western military equipment into Ukraine, whatever it may be. I mean, you know, one, one can come up with a whole you know, variety of scenarios, and maybe I will in a future podcast. Point is that the man who, after all, was crucial in the decision making over the Litvinenko poisoning, the man who seems to have been behind the attempted coup in Montenegro in 2016, the man who it is likely, though it's harder to be definitive about this, but I think it is likely was behind the, shall I say, redefinition of Alexei Navalny from being an opposition politician to being uh, a knowing or unknowing agent of the West and was therefore fair game for poisoning. You know, in other words, you know, the man who's behind all this, that was obviously Patrushev, is now, I would say, the person whose perspective 
is the crucial one in actually defining how Putinism gets to be applied. And that's why uh, this is a very, very sad and uh, bitter conclusion. That's why we are basically in a war to the knife with not Russia, again I would stress this, but the Russian regime and the Kremlin, so long as Putin is in that Kremlin. I would love to think that there could be some yet further iteration of Putinism. However, Putinism, Gorbachevism, Putinism, Peacenikism, Putinism, Mother Teresaism, no, I don't unfortunately think I can bet on any of those. I think Putinism, Patrushevism is the last stage of this particular depressingly downward evolution. And this is why he is still, and go back to what I described him in, in a podcast of June 2020, why Patrushev is still, in my opinion, the most dangerous man in Russia. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. И только будь, пожалуйста, со мною, товарищ прав.